Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. For years, ParCast has worked tirelessly to bring you an unprecedented look at history's most radical true crime events. Your support has not only allowed us to keep exploring these stories, but has driven us to keep expanding as well. So as a thank you to the ParCast listeners, I am honored to announce the release of our first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's available on July 12th, and you can pre-order it today at parcast.com cults. The Branch Davidians, The Anthill Kids, Heaven's Gate, and more. Cults combs through the terrifying details never explored in any of Parcast's series before. This is a passion project only made possible by you. So we truly hope you'll enjoy it. Visit parcast.com slash cults to pre-order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. In 1850, The Arctic's King William Island was a desolate place, inhabited only by the indigenous Inuit. But on a frigid winter day, while hunting seals, several locals encountered an odd group of strangers. A crew of about 40 white men used rope to pull a lifeboat through the ice. They were thin, tired, and out of their element. When the men spotted the Inuit, they gestured desperately. They indicated their ships had been destroyed. The crew had salvaged their lifeboats and plenty of ammunition, but no food. They were starving. The Inuits sold the mariners one of their seals. Relieved, the visitors pitched tents for the night and enjoyed their meal. For the moment, they could rest. However, the reprieve was short-lived. A few weeks later, the Inuits saw the travelers camp again. They'd overturned their boat to create a shelter. Their tents were in disarray, and everyone was dead. Bodies were scattered across the site, inside tents, under the ship, strewn across the barren ground. And worst of all, some had been deliberately dismembered. The Inuit were startled by the gnarly corpses, the cut marks on the skeletons, and the strange cooked meat in the stoves. They wondered... What happened to these men, and how did they die so violently? Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. This season on Unexplained Mysteries, we'll be investigating the most mysterious, doomed expeditions in history. We'll look at why humans explore and why they fail. Today, we're following Sir John Franklin's expedition through the Northwest Passage, an Arctic sea route with massive icebergs and freezing glaciers. During Franklin's voyage, his ships disappeared without a trace. Search efforts found Franklin's crew survived for years in the tundra. They battled cold, poison, and starvation well after they should have run out of provisions. No one knows exactly how they clung to life for so long. So we're asking, how do people persevere even in the face of certain death? We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. 
Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. Today, tea is the most consumed beverage on the planet. But if you lived in Britain in the 1400s, you likely never tasted a sip of it. That's because most of the world's tea came from corners of the globe that were hard for Europeans to reach, like East Asia. Western traders often took perilous journeys to Asia for tea leaves, spices, silver, and gold. This was a costly, time-consuming, and dangerous voyage. Ships had to travel south to southern Africa, loop underneath the continent, and sail eastbound. Once they arrived, the explorers were at the mercy of the Ottoman Empire, who controlled the land routes in Asia. Then they'd have to repeat the same arduous journey to return home. If there was a way to sail west directly to Asia, mariners could avoid the Ottomans and travel more freely. They just had to locate a waterway that cut through North America, connecting the Atlantic to the Pacific. Europeans called this fabled route the Northwest Passage. In the 1400s, the Northwest Passage was more of a myth than a reality. People didn't know where to find it, much less if it even existed. Maps were inaccurate or incomplete, especially in lesser-traveled regions like the Arctic. This meant when sailors headed into uncharted territory, they had no idea what they were in for. On the tundra, they'd find massive glaciers towering into the sky and partly frozen blue waters that resembled an icy soup. The temperature could dip as low as negative 40 degrees Celsius. This was cold enough to make clothing freeze to your arms or face. Removing the fabric could rip your skin or hair right off. As if that weren't enough, Arctic sailors also had to deal with long spells of darkness. During frigid winters without sunlight, some travelers died of frostbite, hypothermia, and scurvy. Even if mariners could endure all those obstacles, they were still at the mercy of the seas. For nine months of the year, the Arctic waters could turn to ice, trapping ships in the middle of their voyages. When this happened, explorers had to hunker down until the ocean thawed, even if they were already exhausted, ill, or low on resources. 
In spite of these challenges, many European sailors believed they'd find the Northwest Passage and survive to tell the tale. And Sir John Barrow was desperate to be the one to do it. If he could locate the passage, Britain would control a lucrative trade route to East Asia. And Barrow would go down in history as one of the most distinguished explorers of his time. Throughout the 1800s, he organized multiple Arctic voyages to find the elusive route. He even helped found the Royal Geographical Society. This was the same organization that eventually put George Mallory on Mount Everest in 1924, as we explored in an earlier episode. In 1845, Barrow had spent 40 years looking for the passage, to little avail. He was ready to retire, but before he did, the Englishman wanted to fund one last expedition. He just needed to find the right man to do it. The search wasn't easy. Many adventurers didn't want to abandon their families for years to go on a frigid Arctic expedition. But eventually, 59-year-old John Franklin accepted the challenge. Ever since Franklin was a young boy living near the eastern coast of England, he'd been obsessed with the sea. At the tender age of 14, he enlisted as a first-class volunteer in the Royal Navy. There, he proved himself by surviving deadly skirmishes while still developing a proficiency in Latin, French, and the works of William Shakespeare. However, when it came to leading Arctic expeditions, Franklin had a mediocre record at best. On his first trip, he turned back early due to bad weather. His second voyage ended when the crew ran out of food, and Franklin had to consume his own shoe leather until a rescue party arrived. But even after the missions failed, Franklin returned home with detailed, accurate maps of the region. This assured Barrow Franklin could do the job. In February 1845, Franklin was officially named captain for the journey. The only problem? The ships were setting sail in May. Franklin only had three months to prepare for an expedition that was expected to last a few years. By the time a food provisioner was hired to provide the ship's rations, he only had seven weeks to stock three years' worth of food, in case the voyage lasted longer than expected. The only way he could meet the demand was by canning goods, a new practice at the time. It had never been used for food storage on any other expedition. Just in time, 8,000 tin cans loaded onto Franklin's vessels, the HMS Erebus, and the HMS Terror. Additionally, the hulls were stocked with two tons of tobacco, 24 tons of meat, and 7,500 liters of liquor. This voyage was better equipped than any previous Arctic expedition. With their resources and a captain who'd been to the tundra before, the crew thought they'd surely find the passage. And of course, they'd make it home to share the news. On May 19, 1845, the Erebus and the Terror left port. As they departed, Franklin's daughter Eleanor saw a dove settle on one of the masts. It struck her as a good omen for her father's voyage. Likewise, Franklin's crew seemed to be in good spirits. This was true even after a month or so at sea, when Franklin called for a brief stop in Greenland. He wanted to resupply while they still had the chance. 
During that time, the sailors wrote letters home, expressing their contentment with the abundant supplies and Franklin's leadership. A few weeks later, Franklin was ready to proceed. As the crew departed, they crossed paths with two whaling ships in Greenland's Baffin Bay. One of the captains reported Franklin's men were doing well. He expected them to complete their expedition on schedule. Unfortunately, even the most experienced sailors could be wrong, because this was the last time anyone in Europe ever saw the Erebus or the Terror. Coming up, Franklin gets trapped in one of the deadliest places on the planet. British history may be rich with impact, but it's also rife with mysteries. In UK Unknown, the new Spotify original from Parcast, we attempt to answer some of the Isle's most elusive questions. Who was Jack the Ripper? Were secret groups controlling the empire? And who, or what, created Stonehenge? Royalty, literature, aliens, war. UK Unknown takes a closer look at Parkart's most mystifying episodes to separate hoax from history and absolute rubbish from the bloody baffling. Sit back, grab a cuppa, and catch a new episode of UK Unknown every Friday. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In 1845, Sir John Franklin led an Arctic expedition in search of the mythical Northwest Passage, a trade route that would allow Europeans to import valuable goods from East Asia. That first year, Franklin traveled through Canada's Wellington Channel and spent a winter on Beachy Island. Unbeknownst to the sailors, they were already halfway to the Pacific. And Franklin was determined to make it through the icy waters. This was his fourth Arctic expedition, and likely his final opportunity to find the passage. So, when late spring came around and the ocean was smoother, the captain pressed onward. He directed his ship south along the Peel Sound, a narrow waterway that cuts through Canada's northernmost islands. Unfortunately, this was a big mistake. The boat drifted between sheets of frozen water, slowing it to a crawl. The propeller spun in futility. Finally, the ship came to a complete stop, trapped in the ice. Since it was now summertime, Franklin thought they could wait for the thaw. They hunkered down and slowly ate and drank their way through the rations. But the frost held strong and the frozen water didn't melt. By September, the ship still hadn't made progress. And unfortunately, for the next year and a half, they would remain stuck. To make matters worse, pneumonia and tuberculosis swept through the vessels. Men perished at an alarming rate, and much more easily than usual. 
it was as if a supernatural entity, a cloud of death, had drifted through the Erebus and the Terror. By April 1848, the sailors had had enough. If they stayed on the ships, they'd surely perish. They needed real shelter on land. There was only one way to find a more hospitable home in the Arctic, exit the Erebus and Terror, and manually drag the lifeboats over the icy tundra. There, they could hunt and stay alive until it was safe to continue. The crew tore wooden planks from the ships and built sledges from the oak. They grabbed thick, heavy ropes, hauled their dinghies onto the sledges, and set off for land, pulling for their lives. For the third year in a row, the crew had to survive in one of the most inhospitable climates in the world. Despite Franklin's best efforts, his mission to chart the Northwest Passage had turned into a grim death march. By now, the voyage was less about exploration than about survival. On the other side of the world, the sailors' loved ones grew concerned. No one in England had heard from the crew in years. Franklin's wife, Jane, pleaded with the British Admiralty to send a search and rescue party. But Sir John Barrow dismissed her concerns. He reassured the public the mariners were, quote, well-equipped for their purpose. Plus, dispatching a team would entail a big task. It would mean sending the would-be saviors into the same dangerous conditions that had derailed Franklin. Even if they did find survivors, the rescuers would deplete resources and make it harder for everyone to return home. On the other hand, Britain couldn't afford to look callous. If it seemed they were abandoning the crew, others would be less likely to sign up for future voyages. So in 1848, three years after Franklin left, the Admiralty finally admitted the sailors were in trouble. They sent a rescue team. With the acknowledgement of Franklin's disappearance, the public became fascinated. Even wealthy Americans were interested in the fate of the lost expedition. In 1850, U.S. merchant Henry Grinnell sent multiple search parties to Beachy Island. Grinnell had an advantage. Unlike the British expeditions, his ships didn't need to cross the Atlantic Ocean to reach Canada. On the island, Grinnell's crew managed to track down some evidence of the missing sailors. They found makeshift shelters, remnants of a boat, and clothing that seemed to belong to Franklin's men. And they also found three graves, indicating that the men died aboard due to sickness. This meant Franklin's ships hadn't been wrecked at Beachy. They had moved onward. By this point, Franklin had been missing for five years and they'd only had three years' worth of rations. It seemed increasingly unlikely anyone could have survived. Still, the crew's family wanted closure, and the general public wanted answers to the mysterious disappearance. So, Scottish surgeon John Ray launched a search effort of his own. Of all the search expeditions launched so far, Ray was the most well-equipped for the job. He had 15 years of experience in the Canadian tundra. So Ray led multiple search parties over the next few years. He had good reason to think he'd have success where others had failed. Unlike the others, he asked the local Inuit people for help. In 1854, Ray asked some Inuit near Pelly Bay if they'd heard about the lost sailors. 
They reported another group had spotted the men four years before. At the time, the Inuit had been hunting seals in King William Island. They'd encountered an unusual sight, 40 white men dragging a boat behind them. The Inuit weren't used to seeing foreigners trudging through the ice, especially not ones hauling a dinghy with rope. The Inuit's testimony was the first account of the lost mariners since their pit stop in Greenland. It meant at least some of Franklin's men had survived until 1850, five years after they left England. This was at least two years after their rations ran out. Their endurance was especially impressive, considering they'd braved the brutal climate, built makeshift shelters, and found food in the tundra. But these new details didn't merit a celebration. The Inuit also told Ray that a few weeks after they saw the men dragging the boat, they found 30 corpses and a few graves in the same area. And these bodies were in an alarming state. They were missing limbs, and bite marks dotted the bones. In his official report, Ray said, From the mutilated state of many of the bodies and the contents of the kettles, it is evident that our wretched countrymen had been driven to the last dread alternative. Ray believed the lost sailors had resorted to cannibalism. As we discussed in our episode on the Donner Party, in extreme cases, explorers sometimes had no choice but to eat the corpses of their fallen comrades. But the notion was too painful for many Britons to acknowledge. They tried to come up with an alternative explanation, blaming polar bears or the Inuits for the crew's demise. Franklin's wife, Jane, also refused to accept Ray's testimony. She resolved to never stop looking for her husband. In fact, now that his legacy was in question, she grew even more fervent. She spent countless hours studying Arctic geography to better understand where Franklin's ships may have hit a snag. She wrote letters to the President of the United States and the Emperor of Russia to request their help. She even funded her own search parties. In the 12 years after the captain went missing, she sponsored five expeditions. In 1857, she commissioned Sir Francis Leopold McClintock to lead one of these missions. Unfortunately, McClintock struggled with similar daunting challenges that had plagued Franklin. Specifically, McClintock's sailors had to wait out winter in the barren tundra of Greenland's Baffin Bay. Even after they resumed their voyage, they encountered icy waters and had to wait out the cold snap in 1858. This meant they, too, had to survive a second Arctic winter. Finally, in April 1859, McClintock and his men arrived at King William Island. This was where the Inuit had spotted the Franklin's dead crew years earlier. The territory looked like another planet, a flat wasteland of gray rocks and white snowy ice. To conduct a more efficient search, McClintock split his men into two groups and tasked them with investigating different parts of the island. As the captain searched, he noticed a couple of Inuit families passing by. One was wearing a familiar accessory, a button with the emblem of the British Navy. Curious, McClintock asked the Inuk how he'd gotten the button. The local man answered he had several artifacts from Franklin's voyage. 
his neighbors had spotted the ships as one sank and the other drifted toward shore. Later, McClintock met with other locals who sold him silver plates adorned with Franklin and his officers' crests or initials. They said they'd seen the men dropping like flies while marching toward the Great River. Based on his testimony, McClintock's crew knew which trails Franklin and his men had traveled on King William Island. If McClintock could properly retrace their steps, he might be able to actually recover the lost sailors. Days later, he stumbled on a skeleton and notebook that belonged to Harry Pegler, one of the sailors aboard the Terror. It seemed McClintock was on the right track. Around the same time, another search party led by Lieutenant William Hobson scoped out Victory Point on the coast. They came upon a pile of stones stacked like a marker. A piece of paper was lodged inside, a handwritten note. With bated breath, Hobson unfolded the paper. The letter was an account of Franklin's voyage after the ships left Europe. It was dated May 28, 1847, and said, Sir John Franklin commanding the expedition. All well. But in the margins of the paper, there was another message, dated to one year later. This said, 24 sailors had passed away on the ships while they were trapped in the ice, including Captain Franklin. Now, in the spring of 1848, they were deserting the boats in the hope of making it to the Hudson Bay territories. The letter offered some closure to Franklin's widow, Jane. Her husband was dead, but she could rest a little easier knowing he wasn't still struggling to survive in the brutal Arctic cold. Although she felt like she had answers, she sponsored one more expedition about 20 years later, and nothing turned up. In fact, nobody would find any new clues about the doomed Franklin expedition for over a century. Coming up, modern researchers dive into the case. Now, back to the story. After decades of search efforts, rescue teams determined John Franklin died in the Arctic around 1848. His crew battled to survive for at least another year afterward. Researchers couldn't determine how the sailors made it so long after their supplies ran out. Nor could they locate the ships, the HMS Erebus and the Terror. They seemed to have vanished. But as technology progressed, scientists suspected they could uncover the boats. Over 135 years after Franklin's men set sail, in 1981, Canadian anthropologist Owen Beatty started the Franklin Expedition Forensic Anthropology Project. The program would inspect the sailors' bodies with the same techniques a detective would use on murder victims today. Imagine if CSI took place on a glacier. On King William Island, Beatty's team found a partial skeleton of one of Franklin's sailors. They examined the bones to get a better sense of how he'd perished. The dead mariner suffered from scurvy, his ribs and sternum were nowhere to be found, and his right femur had three parallel dents, each under one millimeter wide. All signs pointed to dismemberment, which allowed Beatty to paint a picture of what had happened during the final days of the Franklin Expedition. 
Those who were still alive in the summer of 1848 were stationed in the southern part of King William Island. By this point, they were already exhausted. They'd overcome three years of starvation, suffering, and illness, and they couldn't go on like this much longer. Some men traveled east, likely in the hopes they'd arrive at the Back River. If they found it, they could sail north to a fort run by the Hudson's Bay Company. But during their trek, the sailors had to get through miles of daunting Arctic terrain. This would be harrowing in the best of circumstances, and they were completely out of food. These challenges must have slowed the mariners to a crawl. The lost sailors came to terms with the fact that they were going to die. But when one of them did perish, they had an opportunity. Now the survivors had something, or rather someone, to eat. By feasting on the dead body, the remaining sailors would have the energy to carry on, and they could store the uneaten limbs for later. Lab results confirmed what John Ray had heard a century earlier. Franklin's crew had resorted to cannibalism. But Beatty wasn't just interested in figuring out how the final survivors persevered. He also wanted to understand how they might have eventually died. He analyzed the elements inside the bones. This revealed the seafarer's skeleton contained a high concentration of lead. The sailor, and potentially his fellow crew members, may have had lead poisoning. To be certain of the cause of death, Beatty needed to run precise tests on a body's soft tissue. And within the last 10 years, a search party had rediscovered the three graves on Beachy Island and left them untouched. One of them was marked Petty Officer John Torrington, a sailor on Franklin's voyage. Beatty hoped the frozen earth had preserved the corpses. He requested permission to exhume the bodies, and a couple of days and five feet of permafrost later, the team dug out Torrington's icy coffin. As an assistant pried it open and unraveled a cloth, the researchers got their first glimpse of Torrington's corpse. His body was perfectly intact, with no sign of frostbite, and his eyes were half open. Beatty couldn't have asked for a better preserved body. Back in the lab, researchers confirmed Torrington had also suffered from lead poisoning. This solved a major mystery about the Franklin expedition. As Beatty wrote, lead poisoning causes weakness and makes people more susceptible to other deadly diseases. This was why so many sailors died early on in the voyage. It wasn't a supernatural cloud of death. It was lead. But the historians weren't sure how the sailors had ingested so much. Some blamed the food. The provisioner must have rushed the canning process to deliver the provisions on time. Then, during the voyage, the lining from the tins may have contaminated the rations. Unbeknownst to the sailors, each time they sat down to a meal, they were slowly poisoning themselves. But this wasn't the only potential source of lead. Some blamed the ship's desalination process. The Terror and the Erebus used machines to make seawater potable. But the mechanisms may have also leached lead into the water. Either way, Franklin and his men may have been doomed before they ever set sail. The only way to confirm either theory was to locate the Erebus or the Terror. 
but the vessels were still nowhere to be found. That is, until a Canadian search team made a bombshell discovery in 2014. That year, a group known as the Victoria Strait Expedition set out to find the missing vessels. With four ships and a helicopter, a team of underwater archaeologists spent five days diving in the strait. They inspected nearly 28 square kilometers, about 11 square miles, noting every artifact, bit of wood, or disruption in the seabed. They hoped the trail of debris would lead them to the wreck. As they surveyed the area, helicopter pilot Andrew Sterling landed on a small island. He walked along the beach where he found an old ship's iron fitting and a wooden plug for a deck pipe. The discovery inspired the team to focus on nearby waters. Using sonar technology, the investigators detected a shipwreck caked in two centuries worth of kelp and barnacles. When they measured the vessel, it perfectly matched the Erebus. Two years later, another team found the HMS Terror off the southern coast of King William Island. On the ocean floor, the helm wheels stood upright, dripping with chunks of seaweed. Sea anemones crawled over waterlogged piles of rope and shattered planks. Thanks to the freezing temperatures and the lack of natural light, Franklin's ships were both well-preserved. The divers searched the vessels and unearthed more than 350 artifacts from the Erebus alone, including a wax seal with a fingerprint and a brush with strands of hair still stuck inside. But Franklin's body was nowhere to be found. Scientists still haven't determined what transpired during Franklin's last days, and we may never know. Like the sailors who came before him, the captain likely failed to chart the elusive sea route. Or perhaps the lost mariners did find it, but died before they had a chance to tell anyone. After all, Franklin was closer to his goal than he likely ever imagined. His final decision as captain was to depart from the western side of King William Island, leading him into icy waters during the brief Arctic summer. But if he departed from the east side, he would have enjoyed smoother seas. In fact, this is how Norwegian explorer Roald Amundsen discovered the Northwest Passage in 1909, making it all the way from Norway to Alaska's Pacific coast. If Franklin had made one decision a little differently, today he may have been remembered as a champion. Instead, his name is synonymous with his sailors' disappearance and their fatal march across the ice. But the seafarers also left behind a legacy of endurance. Over 175 years ago, Franklin and his crew braved the high seas, made it through the tundra, and then survived for years in the frigid north, all while possibly infected with lead poisoning. This was an incredible feat. Even with modern technology, healthy explorers can die while trekking through the Arctic today. And this speaks to one of the most important elements of the Franklin expedition, perseverance. The doomed crews achieved far more than they should have while starving and suffering from lead poisoning. Every expedition, even the fatal ones, prove we have an unavoidable urge to challenge our boundaries. 
As long as there are places to explore, you can count on ambitious people to chart them or die trying. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Instead, go out and explore. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Ben Hanani, edited by Andrew Messer, Ben Caro, and Angela Jorgensen, with fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Chelsea Wood. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. The Loch Ness Monster, Jack the Ripper, Shakespeare's Lost Play. The British Isles have long been the source for infamous crimes and baffling events. In UK Unknown, we cross the pond in search of answers, investigating the UK's most inexplicable mysteries. Follow UK Unknown free and only on Spotify. Catch a new episode every Friday. Hi, listeners, it's Vanessa. Exciting news, ParCast's first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Join Them, is now available for pre-order at parcast.com cults. Thanks to your support, we've compiled years of research, insights, and a catalog of case studies to expose more about these cults and the people behind them than ever before. Details which haven't even been explored in our Cults podcast. Visit parcast.com slash cults to pre-order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them.